This is Delegate Brian Crosby from St. Mary's County, the Mother County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of information on what's happening in Annapolis. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about schools. We're going to talk about COVID's effect on schools. We're going to talk about how they handled the pandemic. We'll talk about plans for reopening safely, making sure that it's equitable for everyone. And to do that, I think we have no better guests than the Executive Director of the Maryland State Education Association, Sean Johnson, and President of the Maryland State Education Association, Cheryl Boast. So, Michael, I'm really excited to get into this today. I think we have a lot of issues that overlap, especially when we're talking about getting back from COVID, how we responded to the pandemic, and making sure that we can provide safe spaces for our students to get back to school, to get back to in-person learning. And I'm really excited to talk about it. I also am excited to get into the communications aspect. But, but Michael, I mean, I'm excited to hear about how both of us are working to get back to, to quote-unquote normal. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how much of the the recent past or the months ahead are going to be truly normal, but this really did feel like a good time to get this perspective really from some of the people who have been asked so much to serve during these difficult times. So really, really happy to have Cheryl and Sean join us today. Thank you for having us. Long time listener, first time guest. It's excited to be with you. <laughs> All right, so now we can call you a friend of the podcast, both of you. Exactly. Like that. <laughs> All right, so so we're into the summertime. For many of us in government and politics, that means that we're winding down a fiscal year. But of course, it also means that we've just wrapped a school year. This has certainly been a year unlike any other, no doubt about it. Let's get your just general observations and perspectives as, as, as again, we just wrapped up the, the school year. Well, thank you again for having us because we'd like to make sure that the educator voice is heard and all different ways and and venues. Um, So people get an understanding of what our educators are doing. Um, This year seems to have been a year and a half uh, when schools closed on March 13th, 2020. Um, It seems like we've been ongoing since then of of different decisions of closing uh, our buildings, opening to virtual uh, summer programs, uh, hybrid, all kinds of new names in our vernacular. Uh, for what we've been through. But through it all, uh, we totally appreciate and and commend all of our educators who stepped up. Uh, I mean, like I said, when schools closed March 13th, March 16th, that next Monday, our cafeteria workers were still serving meals and we've served millions to families and students. Our custodians were keeping our buildings clean. Our educators switched on a dime to uh, virtual learning. And so everybody has really stepped up and and we're dedicated employees anyway, but this was like super, superhero dedication this year. And again, we want to thank all the parents and, and students who persevered too. It really had to be a team effort. No question. It, this has been very trying, but but the mission is so important, right? We, we owe so much to, to the children in our schools that this isn't one you can just let slip by. So 
you know, the call goes out for educators to find a way and, and for parents to do the same and, and over time for, for children to try and adapt to a different learning circumstance and a different set of communications and so forth. It's, it's been difficult for everybody, but it's sort of, you know, it's a necessity. We, we, we need to keep kids moving along and progressing. And uh, I just, I stand in awe. My my daughters in public schools um, did exactly what you described. Uh, that very quick switch in March of 2020 to we'll make do with remote learning, and um, their teachers quickly started coming up with here's what we can patch over for the next few days, and then the next few days after that'll probably be better. I I have to think improvisation was a really big part of this. You know that's uh, a a club they didn't all know they had in the bag, right? Absolutely. Um, as a teacher, myself, as a fourth and fifth grade teacher, we like to see the long term. You know, what's this whole school year going to be like? What what units are we going to teach? What, you know, lessons maybe a, a few weeks out? Nobody had that. Even our veteran teachers or incoming new educators, nobody had that foreseeable future, what's going to happen. As you said, we were kind of looking maybe two weeks in advance. Will will this work? Won't it? We're learning new platforms, new directives that were coming down. Grace and flexibility became two key words in our vocabulary (laughs) for everyone to give each other grace and and, and be flexible and, and really reaching out to try to capture all of our students I will have to say, though, this pandemic and the the type of learning that that occurred really exposed a lot of the deficits, though, that we have in our education. You know, we have the digital divide. So many students just didn't have access. So many food insecure families. So much social emotional uh, trauma for our students and families. We did learn a lot and expose some of the things that haven't been occurring that that we need to now uh, figure out how to fix those items, but everybody really was stepping up. I think that's a great point because I mean, the, the digital divide, I mean, I remember we had kids, you know, their parents were driving them to fast food restaurants because they didn't have internet access at home and they couldn't do their homework. And so I know that the schools as well as County governments, I mean, I saw schools uh, inviting kids to come to parking lots and they would have Wi-Fi access for them. So their parents could bring them there and they could do their work. So that on the fly as well was really impressive to see how the school systems stepped up and made sure that that kids had access to the internet so they could continue with their education even amid the pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, we many of our educators, as you said, some of our teachers were parked outside McDonald's or the school and they were teaching in the front seat and their own children were trying to learn virtually in, in the back seat. And even when we held meetings, some of our uh, uh, local presidents, they were in cars sitting next to a school or a parking lot. And one of the things the pandemic also uh, created, as we know, is everybody was trying to buy toilet paper and everything else. But these school systems were trying to buy laptops and devices and we're having a hard time getting them in. So the supply and demand was really a, a, a problem. Plus, trying to get the facilities to a place that were healthy and safe, ventilation issues, masks, hand sanitizer. As everybody commercially were fighting for those things, so were our districts to ramp up what was needed. So it was a totally new development as we were dealing with them personally systems were dealing with it uh, for what they needed for to make their schools safe. Plexiglass was in high demand across the state <laughs> and country. Right. 
I, I think that it's an interesting perspective that I'm I'm not sure it's obvious to everybody that I, I think almost almost anybody who who's a listener of this podcast, the kind of people who are interested in state and local policy and politics, are at least generally aware of this idea of the digital divide and ways where we probably were systematically not fully ready for this pandemic. And you know, everybody had to pull through it. But a lot of that conversation probably has been at the institution level, thinking about does this school system have the the buildings and facilities it needs, or does this particular school building have the capacity to handle what it needs to? I'm not sure we all have thought about it, telescoped all the way down to the individual teacher in the classroom saying, well, if we're not fully ready, how do I still make Thursday's lessons work and reach all those kids? I I confess, as you're talking through that, I had like a little light bulb flickering on that this is a bigger deal at a personal level than really met the eye. It, it's a great challenge. I know, you know, Sean, you and I have a, a similar station with member-driven organizations, and I, I suspect both of you have been in touch with educators from around the state. Are there other waves of issues like that where members of the statewide association and and other educators have really adapted to this trickiest of all circumstance? I think Cheryl really hit all of those those key points, but I I think what's lost in some of this is just how human uh, each and every educator is in dealing with this and her or his own right, their own children, much less the students that they're tasked with educating or, or otherwise supporting. Uh, their own lives, their own communities, uh, their caretakers of their parents or, uh, or or others in need, and the elements of all of these things that that were driving decisions for county health leaders or uh, the governor or others who were making um, decisions around uh, opening, closing, how things would be accessed, limits, and the like. The teachers and other educators in a in a building were really reacting to those things. They weren't the ones individually making a decision as to how a lesson was going to be delivered. And so navigating that from a level of, I think at the very beginning, being revered for how are they persevering to then being persecuted during some of the, the back and forth of why isn't my student back in a classroom? Um, Mm -hmm. And that somehow was a teacher's, individual teacher's uh, fault. I think uh, frustrations grew throughout this. And the perseverance is really the word that I've come to use and understand and appreciate to to a whole new level uh, with uh, with educators across the state over the last year and a half. I think think you're right um, that that human element has shown itself more and more as these times have worn on everybody in virtually every way and, and, and multiple settings. And um, I, I think we see some of the same elements you're, you're speaking to, you know, people expressing frustration to an individual teacher or to a principal or whomever. Um, we're seeing the same sort of things, frustration at the health department or at the person doing an inspection at a restaurant or all, all those sorts of things. It's it, it's a it's a trying time in a lot of ways. I, I guess that that leads to 
Um, you know, Cheryl, you made a comment about some of the weaknesses in the system that that may have have been revealed through this or, or or exposed a little further through this. We know this hasn't been perfect, and educators play a big role in that connection to students being connect being you know up to speed academically. But also there's sort of the social and emotional side that that has to be part of this too. The the one-to-one connection through a camera in a lot of cases just can't be a perfect substitute. You you have more thoughts on on where we think we are and and where do we go from here on on that front outside the textbook, but in the relationship level? Well. We can all, I think, agree that the best education that we're going to be able to provide our students is in the classroom with our educators. Um, As a very veteran uh, teacher, uh, the relationship and the energy exchange between uh, students and, and teachers, and even when they see the bus driver in the morning, that can change their entire day. Um, because they have a relationship with somebody, those are critically important to the work that we do. And so we were getting a glimpse into the lives of our students, but um, it, it wasn't the same connection. And in many cases, our students were in sometimes in environments that weren't conducive to their learning and their social emotional help. And we just didn't have the resources or the capability to actually go and and, and provide services. So We are excited at the investment uh, that we're seeing from the federal government and uh, state through the American Rescue Plan, through the blueprint, to provide tutoring and small group tutoring for our students. Um, We are hoping that our summer school programs that have been ramped up and are now open for free for all of our students are going to have more counselors and school psychologists and social workers as, as part of their um, part of their daily seeing students. I know when I was working in a summer camp that I started for my students, our school counselor was with us um, mm-hmm. because academics and our social emotional well-being, we know, you know, the Maslov and the Bloom, we, we, we have to have our needs met in order to succeed academically. So we hope that that doesn't get lost as we are rushing to open up our schools full time. You know, we, we, we support the in-person start in the fall uh, for our students to get started. We, we can't negate some of the health and safety still concerns, again, with the ventilation and, and things that take place. But we can't go back to the things that we know that weren't working. And that is, you know, just pushing curriculum and not taking care of our students, not taking care of our educators and listening to our educators. We just saw the RAND survey that said one out of four educators are thinking of leaving after this school year compared to past years where it was one out of six. So we already have a pipeline shortage. So Hmm. we want to learn from some of the the things that were exposed. We want to take some of the best practices that we learned by infusing more of the the, uh, virtual into our daily lessons. And then let's ramp that up now that we have these investments into education. I think those are great points. And I, I think it's important to, I'm not sure everybody realizes that so many kids rely on their, their school 
for basic necessities like food, right? They get their social support. So we know that families rely on schools in so many circumstances and, and we saw the schools step up, but, but I agree. I mean, I think everybody is looking at what can we take out of this pandemic that's positive and use in the future. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And speaking of, you know, remembering these lessons and getting into the future, I guess we're to the point now where we're looking ahead. We're looking ahead to the fall, vaccination rates are up. Hopefully the, the COVID-19 spread is down for good. What do you see? You know, you said you support the idea of opening in the fall. Of course, we need to be measured and we need to, to take a look at all the metrics. But what do you think we have ahead in the fall of 21 when, when kids are back for in-person instruction? I, I think overall, um, I, again, we have to look at health and safety. We can't just throw everything out and say, oh, we're back back to normal. Um, making sure that we're, we're, we're paying attention to anything. Uh, we don't have to wait for a pandemic to be healthy and safe and have good school environments and ventilation. Um, that should be a basic that we, that we provide. Um, we shouldn't have to wait for trauma before we're working with students, with counselors and school psychologists. And then we will have to take some time and figure out through the tutoring and other things, how we do make up for some students who we didn't get to see during this time and, and, and make up for some of that lost learning. But I also think we have the opportunity now to infuse uh, digital platforms better into our, our delivery of education and what students can work on at home. And so that's going to take an investment in uh, devices. Uh, we think all students and all educators should have a one-to-one -one device because now we're not just going to take all those laptops and put them back in the school and say, now at home, you're uh, without the digital connection. We're going to have to make that work. It's no longer a luxury. It's a, it's a necessity that our students are learning in a digital environment. And all of our educators have that. I mean, if you think about it, to go back to that human nature, our educators went home, took their devices. They used their own cable network, their own internet hookup, many of their own devices in many cases. And they did that. And we now have to figure out how can we make that more sustainable um, for everybody. Uh, I'll jump in just to say that the, the plan forward has to be mindful of what we learned, but we also can't just fight, be prepared for the last war. We need to be <laughs> uh, mindful for whatever circumstances. As Cheryl said, health and safety isn't just a pandemic response. That's a, that's a good rule of thumb, generally speaking. Um, we have some opportunities through building renovations and projects and ventilation issues that may also address a pandemic and things we don't know about variants or how we're still trying to vaccinate people, uh, students who would be under the age of, of 12 and how that impacts and what six and a half hours in one classroom with the same group of people might mean. Those are things we're still learning. Uh, but getting to a place where that can be a uh, safe and healthy place and normal is the place that we are anxious uh, to to get to. No doubt about it. Well, I, I think that that frames this conversation well as we we sort of shift gears from where we've just been into into next steps. And I, I, I'm interested. You know, Cheryl, you made mention of we know there's an influx of federal funds built around recovery from the health circumstances and the weird economy we're in and that and that a, a sizable share of that is meant to bolster education offerings during that time we also know that Maryland has made a commitment through the blueprint for what the next decade or so ought to look like 
in terms of what we owe our school children, in terms of what the teaching profession ought to look like. And I'm really interested in your thoughts to some degree as the follow through from this troubled time we've been in, but also what, what is, what can we be excited about in the, in the years to come? Can we kick off a little bit on that? Absolutely. I mean, that's a great place to go because it it is exciting times. Um, we, we are going to go back to school and what will that look like and how are we going to get students acclimated back in to our classrooms and our, our educators and looking at that. But I think the investment that we are going to make in community schools that we see um, in the blueprint and can, I think can be enhanced by the American Rescue Plan where services are at the hub of the school. So a needs assessment is done and it, it's done with families, educators. And so those schools can offer some of those mental health services, some of those uh, medical services and wraparound services. And I know that's an insider term for wraparound services, but that means that you're attending a club or academic support um, after school. You're doing some uh, fun, exciting things in the summer. Um, so those community schools can begin to build that 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 structure as we come out of the pandemic. The other thing I, I think we have to look at is, um, you know, how are we going to support filling vacancies that we're going to see through uh, teacher shortages? Mm. And um, the blueprint helps us a lot with that, with, you know, let's look at increased wages. Let's look at increased planning time for our educators so they can plan quality lessons. Uh, we need to diversify, better diversify our teaching force. Um, we, we need to recruit and retain educators of color. And so how can we work with our HBCUs in the state, our strong HBCUs and other universities? All of this is a chance to transform our education system to best need, meet the needs of our students. Um, education isn't the same as when we were all in school. It, it's changing and, and, and let's make sure educators have a voice in that and students do. And then I think the other thing is, uh, Sean and I both have talked about it, is what will our, what will our schools look like? Um, can we use the Built to Learn Act and can we use some of the American Rescue Plan to not only take care of the health and safety and indoor air quality, but making sure that all students have science labs so we can you know, be promoting the STEM uh, programs and, and just really bolstering uh, the facilities that for long for so long have been neglected. But Sean, I'm sure you have some other <laughs> exciting things to add. <laughs> I do. I, I actually have a, I have a lot here, uh, and you touched on some of them, Cheryl. I'll use a good government word of, uh, of synergy of <laughs> all of the things that are made possible, I think, through a combination of the blueprint for Maryland's future. Um, Michael, you set it up, I think, correctly in the lens that it's in uh, with the American Rescue Plan and whatnot. That really helps jumpstart some of these needed resources immediately to address pandemic-related academic and social-emotional issues, which I think Cheryl documented really well. But while the blueprint passed, that, that passage also does enact the Built to Learn Act, which gets us moving on critical school construction-related matters, which are jobs, which are not just great outcomes of school buildings that are learning conditions and working conditions for students and educators, but jobs in our local communities. The General Assembly also had moved on uh, settling the longstanding uh, 
court battle related to our historically black colleges and universities. So think of the potential overlap of what Cheryl noted about the need to diversify the educator pipeline with a renewed commitment and investment in our HBCUs as a way to really facilitate that type of collaboration. We have not seen meaningful collaboration in the K-12 to community college to four plus year universities in terms of addressing this chronic issue of a teacher shortage. Maryland, this is not new. A pandemic has not hit Maryland and now all of a sudden we have a teacher shortage. Um, this has been a problem for a long time where we are importing people, uh, educators from uh, outside of the state, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, you name it. We, are, we have to grow them. Uh, we're not growing enough of them in the state of Maryland. Uh, I think um, uh, as we were doing some of the, the tours around the state over the last few years, I would get to a particular county. Uh, I remember doing a discussion in, um, in Hartford County, and they were looking at hiring a certain number of new uh, educators in the year to come. And I said, you know, half of, half of the eligible seats of what you're trying to grow was just uh, created in uh, the graduating class at Towson. Towson had the most uh, graduates, teacher uh, prep program graduates in the state. And that was just to cover half of the teaching uh, force in Hartford County. It's not nearly enough for what we are facing, what we know we need. And so the, the synergy of the opportunity to link how the blueprint can connect to so many other factors, sectors of our local governments, of our local economies, of our workforce, um, uh, is very exciting, very exciting. And, and Michael, you know, you and Kevin, well, Kevin really tracked a lot of the blueprint stuff closely throughout the process. You know, the other items related to early childhood education, related to career technology education, all of those are a great expansion and very exciting elements in and of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with both of you. And, and I think, you know, that that government word synergy, it really does apply here. And, and I hear what you're saying about community schools. And we've talked a lot about that and how so many families rely on all of these services. So let's get them in, in one place and let's give kids something to do after school. Let's keep them out of trouble. Let's make sure they have positive role models and activities. And then I think it's so important, like you said, for kids to see teachers have teachers that look like them, that come from where they come from, that know the community. So a lot of what you're saying, Synergy really does apply. And I know that that's a lot of the goals of, of the Blueprint. And, and we're talking about school construction as well. And of course, that is tied to the Blueprint. And now that is, is gone into effect. You mentioning earlier the need for ventilation and special equipment and, and moving forward, that's not going to go away, right? We, we don't know what's going to happen with the variants, but generally, I think everybody could agree that that having adequate, suitable ventilation is important. So how do you think that, that maybe, you know, the, the Built to Learn Act incorporates some of those items as well? And is that something you want to make sure moving forward we can account for as, as an eligible expense or making sure that those are incorporated into to school uh, development plans? I, I think so, definitely. I mean, when I was teaching at Marsden State's Elementary School in Baltimore County, we were dealing with the ventilation issue because it was a time where there was mold was the big thing. And, you know, we put in plans across the, the, the district about teams that would walk through and check out ventilation and everything. And now we're into the point where this was an airborne uh, virus or, you know, 
and, and we were dealing with it. So we have to look at that indoor air quality and consider it part of the built to learn. And the American Rescue Plan also allows for some money to do that. We can't just say to educators, open up a window. Um, well, many of our classrooms don't have windows <laughs> or we can't say, well, just put a fan in there. It doesn't work, especially when you have, you know, your preschool students and things like that. So we have to think bigger. It's not like our house where we can put a ceiling fan in and say, hey, we've created some air circulation. It's bigger. And I'm going to let Sean address some of the where that cost is going to come from. Well, that's right. The American Rescue Plan absolutely does create some flexibility for uh, addressing some of those issues. But even outside of the pandemic environment, we all know there have been these conversations about HVAC and heating systems that are available, air conditioning that's available and reliable. Yep, it's all been there. Um, Cheryl notes classrooms without windows, while there are classrooms with windows that can't open. And so all of these things, whether it's as a part of targeting a continuation of a pandemic response, Kevin, for a short-term uh, reliance or usage of, of some of the capital project funds or targeted project funds. I think being able to really uh, address this quickly is important. We cannot just say, yeah, that's a, we're, we're going to address this ventilation problem over the course of the next five or six years. We need to be in a position to make sure that we have safe uh, learning conditions um, immediately. And so if there are some adjustments that need to be done, and we already have the usage eligibility through the American Rescue Plan, but if there are additional adjustments that would need to be made in how money could be spent from the Built to Learn Act, we absolutely should be at the table fighting for that and talking about that. Yeah, I agree. And so I think everybody's looking at ARPA and trying to understand all the eligible costs. And we know Treasury is still you know, putting out guidance weekly. But generally, I think it does provide the schools and state and local governments with a lot of flexibility here, which we've been asking for. I have a question for you both. I mean, like Michael, I think mentioned earlier, we both serve members. We have 24 counties, 23 counties in Baltimore City, of course. And when the pandemic hit, of course, we're all, you know, just struggling to make sure that everybody has all the information they need, that we're providing our members with everything, the latest information. We do that through our blog, through the podcast, through whatever. But I think MSEA has 75,000 members, right? And I subscribe to, to all of your your emails and I get all the notifications and I know you have a great in-house publication up the street, which is awesome. But I also was getting notifications every single day. It seemed that president boast and Sean, we're going to do a Facebook live event for, for this group or to reach teachers here. How was that effort? I mean, how did you guys come together and figure out how to keep everybody in the loop as to, as to what was going on, especially with such a diverse group of members. And I'm sure members with all different sorts of opinions, and then they have, you know, parents that are also in their ear as well. So it's got to just be a monumental effort. But talk a little bit about how you ramp that up to make sure everybody was connected. Right. So just as our educators were turning on a dime to the virtual environment, we were figuring that out too, as to how can we get to our, our folks that are out in Garrett County and the same as Wacomico and, and, and reach everybody and address some of, of their concerns. And what we did find, though, is our, our districts and the State Department were lacking in information and not overly surprising. And so we did become uh, the go-to for our educators to get information. And we started um, somewhat similar to what you're doing. We did learn more at four, 
which was every Wednesday we were on Facebook Live and uh, we were recording those. It, it then morphed into Educated 8 as we, we started to uh, do it a little bit later in the evening. And folks really look to that as information. And we set up an email line where folks are emailing in any concerns. But we have strong local presidents in all of our locals. Uh, we don't represent Baltimore City, but we stay connected to the Baltimore Teachers Union that is there. But our local presidents and our staff throughout the state really worked hard. I mean, they were working on uh, leave issues, uh, memorandums of understandings to see what virtual environments would look like. Um, and then, you know, put on top of that Baltimore County, the ransomware attack just ramped up everything that uh, was making people feel uneasy in that county. So it, it was um, our outreach. And, you know, for years we've been building networks of our educators so that they're empowered to have a voice in their own school and what's happening. And, and that is critical in this environment that it all can't just be in one location, that between our local presidents, our educators with voices and us reaching them um, and the National Education Association. I was able to meet and Sean with our counterparts across this country on a weekly basis um, to get updates. So really making sure we connected those communication loops was important and being a source of information, whether it was items on our website, social media, really was a team effort. And we learned uh, and changed platforms and, and ideas to get it right. And there are some of those things that we are going to continue. I mean, we found that sometimes our members would show up more to virtual meetings than they may if they had to hit the beltway traffic. Um, so we will continue some of those, those techniques. I'll add in just um, that, it was interesting, challenging that we were dealing with a global pandemic. Everybody was dealing with some of these items, but all the solutions were local. And <laughs> so doing an Educated 8 podcast is great, but you're not going to answer uh, an individual educator's question satisfactorily because how they were experiencing that issue in Carroll County was very different than Prince George's County. And so being able to really rely on, I appreciate both elements of what Cheryl noted, incredible local leaders, local presidents of our local affiliates, but uh, I will, I'll champion as the executive director of MSEA, the incredible staff network of people who work out of our Annapolis office, the creativity and communications from the best communication shop in, in the state, uh, the work that, that was done in that regard to create meaningful content that was digestible. Um, but the, the, the network in which that then gets delivered through, we have field staff in every corner of the state who had to be expert on their contracts and meeting individual needs of our members while also understanding what's happening in Annapolis, what's happening in Washington, DC. How is that going to impact the advice that I give on a leave issue, on a sick bank challenge on a particular contract provision and their ability, the capacity to uh, navigate all of that was just in awe of them as a leader of the staff team and the networks that they are then required to build so they can organize themselves out of a job. The best thing that we have in the course of a 75, 76,000 member association are our members and the individual building representatives who who's that go-to person 
in my building who I know is going to have an answer for what the status is of this or how we can react to that. Making sure that those folks had information that was correct, that they could uh, that was they could count on, um, and that they could work with their colleagues and their staff uh, partners. And this was just an incredible display of capacity building and execution of delivery. I was really proud of the nimbleness that um, that we were able to show and hopefully can continue to demonstrate. Uh, I, I'd, I'd add a plus one to that, particularly your your comments, Sean, about your your team rising to a great challenge. Um, I felt very much the same thing with our association and our county government members and, and the professionals who serve the counties, uh, very much the same thing. Dozens and dozens of people exceeded expectations by stepping into broader roles than they were hired for out of necessity, out of desire to help. And I, I don't think I could be much prouder of what we've seen just with all these people who have that public mission. So um, whether it's in the association or in the membership, I, I think we're of a, a similar mindset there. And Cheryl, your comments about some of these ideas carrying on. I mean, I don't like the cliche of silver linings and it kind of feels too soon to be talking that way about uh, you know an event that has been so destructive to our country and our society and the world's not over this yet. But at the same time, there are going to be some innovations and some takeaways that may make our associations better and may make some of our local leaders better equipped for the next challenge and so forth. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have that mindset as, as the time feels right for it. But uh, I think those are, those are really useful observations for, for our listeners. It's, this, is, this is more than just you know, figuring out ventilation. There, there, there were challenges that are more nuanced than that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it, I think it pushed all of us beyond limits that we would have thought. I mean, who would have thought we had a general assembly session completely virtual? But there are items that I think serve people in, in the far-reaching areas that can now contribute to their, their state government and not have to drive three or four hours to get there. I mean, there, there's some some great things that we can continue and move us forward um, as, as individuals and as a state. Well, that moving forward doesn't happen without the educators who drive the mission that we all care about. So for the, for the years of the Kerwin Commission spending time talking about the outcomes that we want and the ways to promote better equity and to, the ways to target areas that need additional help or resources. We know that none of those goals will get reached without educators who are in place with the tools they need in a setting that works and with a way to connect with, with their kids. Um, that's That was our thinking in bringing you on as guests for, for this conversation you know, nominally, the beat for us is, you know, we represent county governments, but the audience for this podcast has turned into kind of a wide swath of people who care about public policy and, and Maryland politics and so forth. We've been, you know, con having conversations about the Kerwin Commission and the blueprint legislation and the fiscal and policy effects for a long time. I think this is a great compliment and uh, just... I mean, my, I, I can't say enough, my, my hat's off 
to to the educators in Maryland who have shepherded our kids through this strangest time and who are really the you know the the foundation of what we want to do next. So uh, this has been a really good conversation. Uh, anything else that you know, that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I'm I'm puffing up our listeners as these wonderful and plugged in and knowledgeable policy wonks out there. So if you have their attention, they've made it this far. What else you got for them? Well, I, I definitely, on, on behalf of our educators, I appreciate that. And we appreciate your support and acknowledgement. And uh, we, we look to continue to partner and, and do great things together as educators are the fabric. Um, as Sean stated, our educators were home with their kids too, as they were trying to, to teach, just like everybody else was trying to work and, and trying to juggle all of those things. But I, I think as in moving forward, making sure that we include educator voice and in every opportunity that we can, whether those are local boards of education, uh, commissioners, councils, our state legislature. Um, we, when we want to talk about education, let's talk to the folks that are delivering that education in the buildings. And, and if we do that, uh, we can get a well-rounded look at, at what, what the issue might be or when we're trying to, to move something. And, and educators are problem solvers. And we want to get things done and we want to do things for the best of our students and our families. And so I just always want to encourage folks, put educator voices at the table. We're not scary. We aren't going to grade you. <laughs> <laughs> But we do have a, a, a definitely a viewpoint and some expertise that we can offer to the conversation. I, I will say I, I'm not sure Sean's not scary, and you know, at the testimony table with a with a glare over at you if you say something <laughs> he doesn't like. But otherwise, I agree with you, and and I echo Michael's comments. I mean, teachers absolutely are are essential frontline workers and 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 institutionally important amid this pandemic and. And we all know how important they are. And, and this has just highlighted that. So thank you, President Bose. Thank you, Sean, for joining us today. And, and I, I agree. I hope we can partner more in the future. And, and I think everybody's voice should be at the table. Teachers certainly important when we're talking about stuff in school. So we appreciate your input today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you both very much. All right. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. We will also make sure to include in the show notes, MSEA's website, all their social media feeds, et cetera. But until next week, this is Kevin Canale signing off for Sean Johnson, Cheryl Boast, and Michael Sanderson, and we will talk to you soon.